You might recall that we recently had a congregational meeting, and, and we, we talked about a lot of things there, but one of the things that we talked about was the progress that we've made together in terms of clarifying our, our values as a church. And, and if you, you weren't there, I just want to make sure that we're together as a church family on these things, and so I wanted to bring your attention to that. Our, our mission as a church is, has not changed. We've had this for, for, well, we've had our missions for the past 2,000 years since Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations. Okay, so that's how long we've had the mission. However, our, the way we, we articulate that here has been growing deeper, walking closer, and reaching farther. And that's what we're doing. That's what we're about. That's what the, what, we make decisions about what we're going to do and how we're going to serve the Lord here in this community, and we would pray have an impact around the world in light of those three areas. But Let's face it, sometimes, uh, as clear as that can be, sometimes the, the why of what we're doing is not always as clear. And uh, maybe you've seen uh, the comic strip. Uh, it's been around for quite some time, but it's the, you know, the guy's laying in bed, and he's kind of calling out to his wife, and he's like, honey, I don't feel like going to church today. And then the response comes back, but Jim, you're the pastor. <laughs> you know what I mean? It happens, folks. It does. All right? It's sort of like this, oh, here we go. And so all of us together as a church, there are times when we're just, I'm sorry, we're just not feeling it. We're, we're trying to do what we need to do. And, and let's face it, maybe, maybe this morning, maybe this morning you woke up and you're like, really? Like, how did Sunday morning come so fast? And why is the time ripping by? I mean, isn't that strange? Like, you know, the next thing you know, it's practically time to leave and you feel like you just got up. Well, if, if we're able to clarify our values, it gives us the why. It helps us to understand why we're doing what we're doing. And so realize that when I share these with you, this is not something that I went into a room or Andrew went into a room or, you know, some other form of leadership went, went by ourselves into a room and just sort of, you know, put these together and spat them out. No, we, we've been working on this for months. This is hours of time of talking together. Inputs came from various places in the congregation. Uh, for some, it was a survey. For some, it's been conversations. For others, it's been sort of a, a, a kind of a, a focused time of discussion and talking. But these were, these were inputs that we got actually from our church family. And then we sorted through those to see what is it that's, that for Clayton Valley Church, in light of the gospel, is, is driving us to do the things that we do, to answer that question of, of why. And essentially, there are, there are four values that came from all of that work. Uh, and so, ultimately, it's because of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, we value, first of all, life-giving truth. Secondly, we value life-changing love. Thirdly, we value sincere community. And then fourthly, we value calling those far from God near to him. Those are the four values. Uh, that's, that's the why behind what we're doing. And so I just want to briefly touch on a couple of them. I won't, I won't go over all of them this week, but we'll just touch on a couple of them, and then we'll come back together again another time and keep iterating these. But the first one, life-giving truth, you know, how, how does that show up? Because it's one thing for you to say, yeah, this is a value. It's another thing to go, well, why? How is that demonstrated in what we're doing as a church? And for us, this idea of life-giving truth comes from several ways it's demonstrated in our, in our church. First is a, is a hunger for God's timeless, abundant word. Uh, let's face it. Our church is hungry for the word. We're not just content to, you know, kind of like, oh yeah, I heard that somewhere in the Bible. We don't just assume it says so in the Bible. As a matter of fact, we're about to, we're going to spend some time together in the scriptures because we have a hunger for the word of God. Um, we also have an emphasis on sound gospel preaching from God's word. It's not just a matter of, well, you know, we're going to try to polish this thing up or, or, or make it more palatable. No, we're, we're, we're unashamed of saying, hey, this is what the Bible says, and we're going to teach that, and we, we want to be soft-hearted in receiving that. Uh, we also see this idea of desiring and, and valuing life-giving truth, and that our, our study for the Bible is for the purpose of growing in intimacy with God. We're just not studying to know it. We're not doing this sort of like, yeah, teach me, but don't touch me kind of thing. No, we want to know God in a deeper way. We want to walk with him. And, and also we would see this dependence and valuing life-giving truth in, that, in our reliance on the Spirit of God as he uses his word to transform us to know and love and glorify him. Uh, we're constantly going, we can't just do this by ourselves. We need the Spirit of God himself to teach us. And, and as we unfold the word, we're prayerfully going, Lord, Holy Spirit, show us. Help us to see. 
Uh, the Word of God is living, it's active. It's not just an innate, kind of inert book that sits here. Uh, no, it's powerful. And uh, the psalmist tells us this, the Word of God actually restores the soul. Uh, you, you feel like your soul needs to be restored? Well, the beautiful thing the psalmist says is the Word of God actively goes about restoring the soul. Uh, we're told the, that the, the Word of God also instills joy in the heart. So do you ever feel like you're lacking joy? The beautiful thing is this, the word of God actively goes about instilling joy into our hearts. It is life-giving truth. And so that's why we value that. And um, we'll talk about some more of these things another time. We'll we'll get to some of the other ones. But um, the key thing with these values is this, let's make sure we use them. Let's use them. Let's not just let them sit around on a website. Uh, When you're in that thick of going, man, why am I doing this? For example, right now, why am I in this building right now? (laughs) Well, one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of them is this. We want to spend time together in God's life-giving truth. We want our souls restored. We want God to instill within us joy. We want to be transformed. We want to live in a different way. And so... uh, we're going to continue to talk about these things in the, in the weeks ahead. But now we're going to continue in 1 Corinthians. And I want to ask you a question. What is so significant about the church? Why is the church important? I mean, for some people, it's just this, well, I go, you know, I go on Sundays. For most people in our community, frankly... It's I don't go in our culture here in the East Bay area. I I still remember when I first came to Clayton Valley Church, I actually walked around the neighborhood and asked people what they thought of the church here. And you know what my most common response was? What church? (laughs) I'm like, that's the steeple behind your backyard. The big, it's like, you know, 200 feet in the air. You know, huh? For many people, there's not really much point for the church. And thankfully, again, by the way, we, we've been seeing the, even the event we're going to have at the end of this month. Uh, our neighborhood's going to show up. They're going to be here. We're going to have a chance to share the gospel with people. But, um, but historically, you know, it was, the church was probably more significant in, d- in days past. But now in modern America, it's hard to say. And uh, Mark Dever does a really good job at pointing out, uh, he's a pastor uh, of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in, in D.C., he points out that even though there's, there's many churches in our country, in the historic sense of what a church actually is, um, churches in modern America have, have almost vanished. What he means by that is a biblically healthy, New Testament-driven church. And, and as he puts it, he says it this way, among the assets of individualism, churches can be nothing more than the expressions of passing interests of their congregants. Their services are determined by what they perceive those outside their numbers want. Their budget reflects nothing more than the aggregate desires of members. Amidst it all, there's, there's a, a, I'm sorry, amidst all the apparent prosperity, what's missing is the truly corporate element of the church conceiving of itself as the church. And then he goes on to say, why? What is the church really here for? What's, why is it here? And ultimately, it is here to put the gospel on display. This is gospel truth lived out together in fellowship and in community. The church is not a building. The church is a gathering of the saints. It's the called out ones. And ultimately, it's to give God glory. And when we see that, he goes on to also describe how we understand that, you know, the Christian life is not simply about this sort of moral effort to cultivate a a list of of private virtues and, and then put off private vices we, instead, we start to understand that, that the church really is God's manifestation or the showing of God and who he is in this world. And that's exciting. And that's what the church needs to be about. We gather today for God's glory. We scatter throughout the week for God's glory. But when, especially when we're gathered, we physically can see amongst us, this is the gospel made visible. And uh, in the first century church in Corinth, uh, the gathered worship time had become 
anything but the gospel made visible, sadly. And, and so Paul is, is, is giving a, a major corrective here to the church in Corinth. And there were several problems. Uh, the first problem that, that uh, Paul was tackling earlier was this idea of, of knowledge. Everyone was puffed up with knowledge. You know, I know this and I know that. And what does Paul say? Well, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And then there were all these false criteria for true spirituality being brought up. And so there were people saying, well, it's best if, it's more spiritual if married couples don't engage in sexual intimacy. And then single people were saying, well, I'd be more spiritual if I were married. And then married people were saying, I'd be more spiritual if I were single. And then other people were saying, I'd be more spiritual if my circumstances were different. I'd be more spiritual if I had a, a different kind of life or I was in a different kind of place. And Paul's whole point, and he just t- takes that apart and goes, remain as you've been called. Because where you've been called, that's where God's using you. Those other issues are not significant. They don't matter. But now Paul moves on into the actual gathered worship time. And sadly, it had become a distorted, distracted, chaotic mess. There were a lot of problems. And one of the problems that Paul has to tackle is connected with the way the women in the church at Corinth were dressing. And, uh, and it wasn't merely about the clothes they were wearing. It, it, it went beyond that to their hearts and the choices they were making and the way that their choices about how they dressed were actually affecting the way people understood the gospel and God's appointed uh, roles for men and women within the covenant community. And, and, and here's how this showed up. Many of them decided to come to church without their heads being covered. And you might think, well, who cares? Like, what's, what's the big deal with that? You know, that doesn't really matter. It's not, it's not an issue. Well, in that culture, it was actually a really, really big deal. Um, because when you do the deep dive and kind of look into the historical background of first century culture, we find that the hair of a married woman was considered something only to be revealed in private intimacy with her husband. That was just the culturally accepted norm. And so when these women would come into church, they were making a statement. They were taking off those veils and saying, forget it. I don't need a head covering. I'm, I'm out of there I don't, I, I, because I'm free in Christ. And so their legitimate freedom in Christ morphed into a freedom without any reference to God's design of the relationship between husbands and wives. And, and so what happened was it turned from freedom into license. And it was contributing to distraction and even chaos in the worship service itself. And so in order to address this, Paul writes 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. And I would go ahead and encourage you to, to look at that, open to that, turn to that. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16. Now just... Fair warning here, there's going to be a lot of parts of this passage that are really tough for us to grasp on first reading. And we've got to remember something. The original recipients of the letter, when they heard it, approximately 2,000 years ago, they didn't have any of those issues. Because they were in that culture. They understood those things. And so Paul doesn't overly qualify a lot of the things that he says here, because frankly, they got it. They didn't need it. And so we're going to have to do the work of actually putting ourselves in their sandals, right? We got to get there and we will get there uh, by, by diligent uh, just study and explanation of this. But go ahead and if you haven't turned there yet, so turn to 1 Corinthians 11 verses 2 through 16. And in honor of God's word, because we want to receive it with respect and reverence, let's stand and follow along as I read. First Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off 
or her head shaved. Sorry, if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach that if man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her as a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Let's pray. Lord, we we come to you and we would again ask that you yourself would open our hearts by your spirit to teach us. This section of scripture has uh, been uh, used, sadly, by, by different groups of people to accomplish their ends without reference to the context and, and the message that you give to us regarding your design. And so we would pray, Lord, that you'd help us in this time and, uh, and give us open hearts that are quick to receive your instruction and to apply that. Uh, we pray that our church here at Clayton Valley would be one where your glory is known, where the gospel is seen visibly in every aspect of all that we do, including the way that we relate to one another and the way that we conduct ourselves as people who follow your design and your wisdom in all things. We ask this in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen. So uh, throughout the week, I you know, kind of get with people at different times, and they're like, so how's your week going? And I'm like, <laughs> this is yet another example, church family, of how beautiful it is that the Bible takes us through topics, takes us through issues, takes us through different elements of truth that I would never pick. All right? So here again, the gospel is protecting you from me. Uh, because God will address the issues he wants us to address. And, and this here is a really important one. It's a challenging one in our time. Uh, in, in many ways, because these passages have been abused in, in, in various places, in various contexts, to have sort of a, a male chauvinism kind of approach to the Christian life. And, and, and making you know, women kind of into this sort of like tier two, tier three person. And, and there's a domineering that's happened in days past. And by the way, if you're here today and you've been a part of something like that or you've experienced that, please know that these passages do not teach that attitude or those, those ways of approaching life or ministry in Christ. And so we want to make sure we're clear about that. At the same time, because of those abuses, people have taken these passages and then reacted way over here and gone uh, to, to another place beyond the, the scope of what's being described here. And, and have uh, some have tried to say, well, obviously Paul here, he was just wrong. And, and we got to back up and go, well, uh, the Bible is God's word and this is inspired by the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit penned this. And so we want to make sure we understand what the spirit wrote, what God is saying here uh, and apply it to our lives. Additionally, another difficulty, again, would be culturally, there are a lot of things at play in this passage that we do not understand. And so we'll do our best to pull from here the principles that are applicable to all times, uh, regardless of, of what the cultural norms may be. Um, there, are, there are certainly truths here that are specific to that time, and yet the principles from that specific instruction will apply for all of us. And so what we're going to see from this passage is this. The gospel is made visible in gathered worship when we, first of all, embrace God's pattern for relationships. So the gospel is made visible in gathered worship when we embrace God's pattern for relationships. 
And what is that pattern for relationships? God's pattern for relationships is voluntary submission. That's God's pattern. Um, And and he really clearly states this in in verses 2 and 3. Paul there is stressing. First of all, he's saying, hey, I praise you because you're remembering me and you're holding firmly to the traditions that I gave you. Paul was with the church at Corinth for 18 months. He planted the church. He's there for 18 months. He's instructing them on all kinds of different issues. And he's saying, you'll recall when I was with you, I shared with you these things. And, and I, I, some people say, yeah, he's just buttering them up because he's about to give them the hammer. I don't think so. I think he's sincerely saying to them, I was with you and you've remembered so many of the things that I taught to you. I, the, so many of the things that I gave you from the Lord. And now he's going to go on and clarify that in verse 3, though. But I want you to understand something. And he gives us this statement. Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. So he's giving us this picture. And um, the first thing we've got to look at is the the term head. Uh, In Greek, it's the term kephale. And I want to tell you right now that more has been written on this term kephale I mean, there are forests of trees that have been slaughtered in the name of kephale and unpacking the meaning of that. Um, and essentially, the, the, the two ways that, you know, I'll try to boil it down, the two um, ways that this term is seen primarily would be the idea of headship or the idea of source. And, and sometimes many have kind of talked through this and said, well, wait, no, it really only means source. And, uh, and, and in full, you know, there are places in the scriptures where it, it does mean source. However, here, uh, one of the principles we've got to hold on to whenever we're looking at the Bible is this. Context determines meaning. That's a key hermeneutical principle. Uh, would that our news outlets would adhere to that more often? We'd be, save ourselves a lot of trouble. Okay, it's just, that's how language works. There's always a context. And um, you know, if I say the word trunk to you, for example, am I talking about the car in the back? Am I talking about this part of the body? Am I talking about the tree? Is it the front of an elephant? How do you know? Context. And uh, you don't want to get confused between the trunk of a car and the trunk of an elephant. You know, <laughs> bad things will happen. So, so uh, we want to make sure we keep the context in mind. And so here, when it talks about the head of, he's talking about authority. Uh, we would see the same thing uh, in various other places in the scriptures. Uh, Ephesians 5 uh, describes this as well. Um, there's other places. But, but he, the picture is that of someone, something or someone being the head and then someone submitting to that, that head. Um, Christ is the head of every man. Well, right here it's talking about actually mankind. So that's another thing that happens. Sometimes terms in this passage, we're like, what's he referring to, mankind or men? In this particular phrase in the very first portion, it's all people. Christ is the head. Now, is Christ, the, does he have authority over all of us? I think we would all say, yeah, we, we totally agree with that. Um, when you go to the last portion of the phrase, God is the head of Christ, what do you see there? Well, you see that God is the one who uh, is God the Father and Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to the Father. We see that over and over in the scriptures as well. Uh, Jesus deliberately said, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, you know, your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. Uh, he talked about how my, my food, he, Jesus would say, is to do the will of myself. No, to do the will of my Father who's in heaven. So that's the ongoing pattern of Jesus' life. And so we would call uh, that in, in a kind of theological terminology. Within the Trinity, there's this thing called the economic Trinity, the way the different... Uh, the Godhead functions amongst one another and Jesus submits himself to the Father. By the way, does that mean Jesus is less God than the Father? And the answer is undoubtedly no. Absolutely not. And so we have an equality of standing. Jesus is God. The Father is God. And yet at the same time, we have a voluntary submission from Jesus to the Father. And now, in the same way, look at the center. So, you know, Paul gives us two kind of phrases on, on the outside, front and end, that we would all go, yeah. And now to the, to the middle of the phrase, verse 3, man is the head of a woman. 
And, and so for some of us, we're like, whoa, time out, huh? What's going on there? Well, again, his purpose in bringing this up is to say, not that man and woman, and really here it's husband and wife. It's very specifically talking about husbands and wives, as we'll see later in the passage. Uh, a husband and a wife in their relationship with one another. Functionally, uh, the husband is the one who is to lead, and functionally, the woman is, or the wife is the one who voluntarily submits to him. That's the picture we see here. And, uh, and that's God's pattern of relationship, voluntary submission. And, and we see that uh, beautifully stated in terms of um, you know, the, way, the way that Christ is, is described in Philippians chapter 2. Maybe you'll recall that. Um, what does it say here? Having, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. So this is Paul teaching in another context, the same concept of, of voluntary submission. Have this, this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So there you see, he is God. When he says he exists in the form of God, that he is God himself. But he didn't grasp that, but instead emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so here, back in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, we would see that as Christ is the head of the body, the church. There's that intimate connection there we would see. Here, he's the head over all people. We see God as the head of Christ. There's this sense in which Christ and the Father are bound to one another as closely as you can be bound, right? From head to body. And within this relationship of love, Jesus gladly honors his Father. Jesus doesn't seek to establish his independence from the Father. And in the same way, we would see husband and wife, it's the same idea. they They are knit together in a bond of love, they are close, as close can be in that, and yet there is a voluntary submission from the wife to the husband. And that means the wife is called to, in the same way that Jesus submitted to the Father, the wife should respect her husband's authority as the son did the father. And by the way, the husband must delight in his wife as the father delights in the son. And we, we, would, we would look at this, and, and I think sometimes, again, because of the abuses that have happened over, over time and centuries and sometimes in our current days, uh, this can become a very, very um, troubling verse for some. But we need to look at the full orb picture of what God says in his word about this relationship. Um, I, I feel like another a place we could look at would be Ephesians chapter 5. Go ahead and turn there if you would. Ephesians 5. Because Paul's addressing a certain situation here in Corinth between husbands and wives and what was happening in the worship service itself. But in Ephesians chapter 5, we see this same concept kind of unpacked a little bit more. So Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 22. Notice it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Same idea. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So we have that same picture given. And then notice, Paul kind of goes on from there and says, hey, but husbands, just in case you're sitting there and going, yeah, that's right. You are. You should do that. Notice what Paul says in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Well, what do you, what do you mean by that, Paul? What does that mean? Well, in case you're wondering, look at the rest of the verse. And gave himself up for her. What did he do for the church? He died. He gave up his life. And so what we find is, is for husbands who have taken these kinds of teachings and gone into this d- dominating kind of mentality and, and treatment of, of their wives, uh, the Bible has no place for that kind of, of living. Here we would see this. The husband is to die for his wife. He is to give up his life for her. Um, 
Look at verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his own wife loves himself. No one's ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church. See what's happening there? Husbands, you love your wives. I mean, you take care of yourself, typically. You're hungry, you feed yourself. You cut yourself, you, you deal with it, you, you, you bandage yourself up. You know, you get a cold, you, you go into the man cold mode, right? Oh, poor me. Right? You do that. So the idea would be the sympathy, the care, the compassion you have for you, you need to have that for your wife. And that's the picture here. Not of domination, but of servant leading and love in a self-sacrificial way. I can't tell you how many times in premarital that conversation comes up and, and how often I'll, I'll be sitting there with a young groom-to-be and it's like, you realize what this passage is saying to you. Yes, this marriage is a wonderful thing you're about to enter into. Yes, it's beautiful. Yes, you should anticipate it with joy. But realize this, you are going to die. You are going to die to yourself. Go ahead and turn over to to 1 Peter chapter 3. We have a similar instruction here given by Peter. And he's talking to wives. Notice what he says in chapter 3 verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that if, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So he's saying, wives, submit to your husbands. Live in this way. And he goes on to this, and I'm not time for today, but I would just encourage you to look at this. It's beautiful. He depicts Sarah and how Sarah obeyed Abraham. By the way, when did she obey Abraham? Well, we know a few times she obeyed Abraham when Abraham was being a total idiot. Hey, Sarah, you're really pretty you know what, where we're going, these guys are going to think you're pretty and they're going to kill me. So just tell them you're my sister. What does that do for her? It puts her in danger. You realize that. She's in danger. She becomes part of a king's harem, perhaps. You don't know what's going to happen. You got to love Peter's corrective. Look at verse 7. Again, It's not just to the wives. Look for husbands. You husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. By the way, that word weaker is not frail. It's more like rare, precious. Think think nice china as opposed to Tupperware, okay? That's what it's talking about there. Since she is a woman and show her, notice this, honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, uh, the word for honor, that, that, that's what's given to kings. That's what's given to royalty. He's saying, men, husbands, treat your wives in this way with honor. As a fellow heir of the grace of life, she is uh, an image bearer just like you are. She is a recipient of salvation just like you are. And notice this, how it ends. End of verse 7. Treat her this way. Why? So that your prayers will not be hindered. Whoa. That is a warning. God is essentially saying to husbands, husbands, yes, your, your wife is called to follow your lead. Submit. However, you don't listen to her. If you don't listen to her, God's saying, I'm not listening to you. You are hindering your own prayers. If you will not treat her with honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. So the passage we're in today does not unfold all these things because Paul is dealing with something very specific. But it's important that we have that background. So back to 1 Corinthians 11. What's God's pattern of relationship Voluntary submission. Notice it happens between Christ and the Father. It happens between all of mankind and Christ. It happens between wives and husbands. Notice it also happens between children and parents. We see that. It happens between all of us and governing authorities, Romans 13. 
There's a lot of different spheres in which this happens. That's God's pattern for relationship. So the gospel is made visible in gathered worship when we embrace God's pattern for relationships. But, but not only that, it's also made visible when we display God's design in creation. When we display God's design in creation. And we see that in verses 7 through 10. At this point, Paul goes into a lengthy discussion of men and women in the assembly. One should have their head uncovered, men, and others should have their heads covered, women. And again, culturally, there were reasons for that. As I mentioned before, the hair was considered something to only be shared or revealed in private, intimate moments between husband and wife. That's what the culture saw the hair of a married woman as. And so because of that, there was a sense of, of certainly modesty here, but there also was a sense of seeing differentiations between men and women. Think of it. First century, most people wore what? Robes. What's the one way you could possibly tell, oh, if someone's a guy or a girl? It'd be the veil, the head covering. I mean, there wasn't, everyone's wearing robes. So this was a distinguishing way of being able to see the difference. And so what Paul's doing here is he, he focuses in verses 7 through, through 10 or so on, on this, the context of, of God's creation and the, the temporal kind of first Adam was made, then Eve was made. Adam was made first. Man was made first, reflecting God's glory. Woman was made second, reflecting the glory of man. Why? Because we're told that she was made as a helpmate for Adam. You know, the, the, you know Genesis passage says it was, it's not good for man to be alone. And so she was given to him as a, as a helpmate. But, but this idea of glory has the idea of, of showing, and it has the idea of God's purpose and God's design. And this relationship between husbands and wives are to reflect God's creation. And so what would, be, what would the pattern be for us from, from these verses here? Um, you know, for, for some people, they would say women still need to wear some sort of covering on their head. And if that is what your conscience says to you, I would never want to prevent or, or hinder or, or discount that at all. And so if that's your conviction, then praise God. But I would see this as being principally for us, the application would be along the lines of, A, Men and women, when you enter worship, and women, be, be mindful of this here in terms of this passage, is make sure that you're dressing in a way that's modest. Again, to them, that wasn't modest. Coming in with, with the hair exposed was an immodest act and distracting. And so a principle would be, hey, let's think towards dressing modestly. But the reality is, is guys, I'd say the principle applies to guys too today. I can't tell you how often, I, I, I'll even be on, online, you know, something will hit my feed, and it's, it's a pastor at a church, and the dude has serious guns, man, and it's a super tight shirt, and he's like, my first point, womp, you know? And you're just kind of like, why? I'm glad you work out, man. I know I got to get in more. I got to get into the gym more. I get it. I get it, okay? But, you know, that would not be a stumbling block here. Trust me. Okay, but um, the point is, anything that would distract we don't need to do that. Anything that would cause our attention to go from God and what he wants to accomplish here amongst us today, his praise, his glory, us hearing from his word, receiving instruction as the spirit of God takes what the spirit's pen to change our hearts, our encouragement of one another, whether it be giving, whether it be praying, whatever it would be that we're doing as we're gathered, we don't want anything to distract. Nothing should distract from that. And what that means is, hey, as I'm coming to church, guess what I'm doing? I'm actually thinking of my brothers and sisters here more than me. How can I be a blessing? Is that, is that my prayer before I get here? Lord, how can I be a blessing to my brothers and sisters around me? Lord, use me as we gather today. Use me to speak maybe a word of encouragement to somebody. Use me to listen to someone. Maybe I just need to give someone a hug. Maybe I just need to pray with somebody. Lord, use me as, as I come to, to give to you of the resources you've given me. 
May you be glorified. Give me a heart of generosity in terms of the time I have or the abilities you've given me or the financial resources you've given me. Help me to live in a way to bless others. You know, the, the one and others of Scripture, that, that's come up a lot in our church as, as of recently. Uh, a wonderful book by Dr. Stuart Scott, 31 Ways to One Another. It's been, I think it's made its way through the whole church by now, which is great. Read that book. It's a good one. Um, we've talked about it many times over the years. Um, the one anothering is so important. And so we're praying toward that. Lord, how can I do that? How can I make sure I'm living that out? Um, because what, what we're doing in, in, in doing that is we're carrying out God's design. And that's what Paul's point is in verses 7 through 10. Uh, he's talking about the order of design and how we need to reflect that. And, and we might think of that, well, you know, how, how does that exactly work? And what does that actually look like? And, and we need to kind of just unpack a few things regarding how things have developed over, over the kind of span of church history since these words were penned. So again, I mentioned it already. Some people take these verses, they go, yep, that's right. Men are to dominate. And they just kind of live that way. And it's, it's sad because it's done a lot of harm to a lot of people. And it's not only sad in what it's done to people, it twists what God has said here and what God has said in Ephesians 5 and what God has said in 1 Peter 3. And so it actually taints people's view of God, which is wrong. But the reaction to that has been, in many ways, you can call it feminism, you can call it what you want, but it's sort of like, you know what, all that is wrong and I'm going to respond to that. Therefore, essentially, there's no difference between men and women. Men and women are interchangeable. And, and it, it's, it's, what's interesting is we're having this discussion here. Our culture has taken that to the nth degree, has it not? I mean, look at, look at uh, women's sports right now. Men and women are interchangeable. Okay, if you keep applying that, eventually, though it's nonsense in the beginning, it certainly becomes much more clear down, down the road. But both of those are errors. And what we have instead, what the Bible would teach us would be biblical, and here's the big word, complementarianism. Um, I was uh, hearing a little talk on this this past week, and it's funny, the guy was like, hey, what, one thing I'm kind of bummed about is every time I'm trying to text a friend about this issue, I've got to text complementarianism. Like, why such a long word? You know, can't we make it something shorter? But, but there's a reason for the word, because it has this idea of complementing one another. And, and so the, what we would see here in, in this particular teaching from the Bible would be this. Men and women are equal in status as image bearers. We would see that in Genesis one twenty seven. We would also see that men and women are equal recipients of salvation. We find that in 1 Peter 3, verse 7. We already looked at that. Yet, men and women are also different in terms of their roles. So they have different roles, but they're equal in status as image bearers, and they're equal in recipients as recipients of salvation. And we see this in creation, and that's what Paul is saying here. And, and so we've got to be clear, too, that if, you know, what is, what is submission between a husband and wife? What does that mean? You know, how does that look? And, and I think it'd be, it's important to say this, first of all, what it does not mean. Submission does not mean putting one's husband in the place of Christ. Your husband didn't die for your sins. Your husband didn't rise again on the third day. Your husband didn't make all things. He's not the creator and sustainer of the universe. Submission also does not mean giving up independent thought. It does not mean a wife forfeits any influence on her husband, especially if that influence is for good. Submission does not mean that a wife has to carry out every demand of a husband, especially if it contradicts the scriptures or contradicts her conscience. Submission does not mean or even imply that a wife is in any way inferior to her husband. What does it mean? Submission does mean, first of all, it's a voluntary placing of oneself under God's ordained authority. When you look at that 1 Peter 3 passage, the reference is submit to your husband because you're submitting to the Lord. And that's a good thing. 
Because let's face it, husbands, sometimes we stink as leaders. Like we just do. We make bad decisions. Sometimes we're intimidated and we go passive, which, by the way, that is almost the most frustrating thing for most wives. Sometimes we check out. Sometimes we go passive. Sometimes we get domineering. Both of those are errors. And so what happens is for her, what courage, what grace, what, what integrity, that, that trusting the Lord, she's able then to voluntarily submit to the leadership of a frail, weak, dependent husband. What else is submission? It demonstrates the differing roles in a complementary relationship of equality. Because again, both husband and wife bear God's image. Both husband and wife have equal standing in salvation. And you know what? Both husband and wife have the same destiny. I love how Peter describes that. She's a fellow heir of the grace of life. You both have the same destiny. You're both heading toward being forever with the Lord. So as we reflect upon the love that exists within the Trinity, it's been God's purpose ever since creation for image bearers to love in that same way, to reflect that. And that's what this view of of the Bibles would be, this idea of a complementarian relationship between men and women. And it shows the gospel. So we'll conclude with this. The gospel is made visible in gathered worship, not only when we embrace God's pattern for relationships and display God's design and creation, but lastly, also when we esteem God's wisdom of mutual dependence. When we esteem God's wisdom of mutual dependence. That's what we find in verses 11 through 16. Notice, as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. Uh, I'm sorry, that's verse 12. Uh, But You can see what's happening here. It's almost like Paul's going, hey, guys, just in case you're going to take this and try to make it mean, that's right, you're dependent upon me. I'm the man. Here, what happens is, it says, verse 11, in the Lord, by God's design, by God's work, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent from woman. And then he gives an example of just how things work. She was created as God took a rib out of the side of Adam, and yet... Every man that's been born has been born from their mom. And so there's a woman from which he's born. So husband and wives, they're not independent entities. They depend on each other. And there's that mutual complementarian view there. They both need one another. They both give preference to one another. And as we look at God's picture here, Paul will go on to say, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for women to pray with her head uncovered? By the way, notice this. Paul's not correcting them for having women pray in in the corporate gathering. He's not correcting that. They pray. Women are praying in the corporate gathering. Women are prophesying in the corporate gathering. By the way, we'll talk about that in the weeks ahead. What's prophecy? What's he talking about there? But the point would be, he's not correcting them, women, for doing that. He's correcting how they are dressing and presenting themselves as they're doing that. Because again, we need to reflect God's design. And we need to esteem God's wisdom of mutual dependence while at the same time holding to God's pattern for relationships, which is submission. But as we look at the the way that God's brought this about, you can kind of go, just kind of imagine with me for a moment, what would happen if these things were distorted? Well, we would see voluntary submission abandoned. We would see everybody would be selfishly clamoring for authority and rule within marriage. We would see God's design for creation of men and women and their unique roles blurred, distorted, and, and the glory would be turned into shame as everyone made up their own way to do their own thing in their own manner. God's wisdom of mutual independence would be ignored. Husbands and wives would not see their marriage as a way to faithfully care for each other. It would be all about getting what I want. So mutual dependence would grade into neither one depending on each other at all. There'd be a new standard of narcissism that would lead to a massive waves of divorce and dissatisfaction and broken families and relationships. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. 
We've ignored God's plan, God's standard as a, as a culture, and we're reaping what that brings. And I would venture to say that in our circle of family and friends, and as we even talk amongst one another, so many lives have been scarred by the ignoring of God's plan and design and purpose for us in this, in this area especially. Last night, I was uh, at Berean Christian High School's uh, concert. There was a choir singing. My daughter was in it, so I'm biased. You know, I, I kind of had to be there, but I wasn't too upset about it. Um, it was beautiful. But as I was sitting there, I was thinking about the passage that we're in today. And I was thinking about how beautiful is a choir because when you are there listening to it, all the voices are heard, especially with the soprano, alto, tenor, bass arrangement, right? S-A-T-B, that's my favorite. Why? Full range, you know, the beautiful soaring voices of sopranos, the intricate voices of altos doing those inner parts, you know, and then tenors kind of doing their thing on the inside. You know, they got the two inner parts with all that, con- you know, kind of contrast. And then the bass, right, laying down the foundation. It's beautiful sounding. Each one does their assigned part as assigned by the composer and the arranger. Now, what if the sopranos were to say, you know what, I- I'm tired of always singing the melody line. I'm tired. I want to sing a substantial part. I'm going to sing the bass. My first thought is, an octave higher, right? No, I'm singing the actual part. Yeah, that's not going to work. That part wasn't designed for you. What if the bases say, we're tired of being the foundation? We're tired of, we're, foundations are ignored, man. They're like dust gathers on them, you know, cobwebs. We're just there. No one hears us. No, we want to soar with the sopranos. Of course, you're thinking an octave lower, right? No. No, we're going to sing those notes. Yeah, that's not going to go well. There will be dogs in the neighborhood that will be offended by that. Like, you know, that's, not, that's not okay. It's not okay. No, each pe- person, each part needs to sing what they've been designed to sing. They need to sing the part that's been written for them. All of them are important. All of them are a different note. And when they sound together in that way, it's beautiful. So let's give God glory as we sing our assigned parts together as his church with joy. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and ask that you would grace us to apply and understand and wrestle through these, these verses and give us the grace to, to work through what this means. Lord, we pray that we would not have any part with the ways that um, these passages have been abused in the past. And, and yet at the same time, we don't want to throw away your design. We ask that you be glorified and that husbands and wives would, would live in your pattern by your design for your glory, that the gospel would be shown, especially amongst your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.